0: Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. I want to suggest in this lecture that Ephesians directly addresses the issue and problem of racism, most obviously in the depiction of a unified church and Jew and Gentile unity and the depiction then of a unified creation, that God's purposes for creation and humankind, they've not been thwarted, though we can see clearly see and we can name sin then by the sense in which there are these divisions between the peoples, the Jews and the Gentiles in Scripture, the black and white today. But it is one of the main plagues of the human race is this divisiveness. And, of course, I see the plan of Christ and the way that Paul is depicting this in Ephesians as an apocalyptic breaking in. And this is what I think Ephesians means when it talks about that God's election or God's purposes for creation are being worked out. His purposes from the foundation of the world are being fulfilled, and we can see this then most clearly in a united, a unified church. Salvation in this understanding, first of all, it's not contractual, but we can see salvation in this apocalyptic relational event, that the restoration of human relations is connected to the relationship of God-human relationships. And these are all interconnected with a cosmic relationship, that is, the relationship of humans with the earth, so that all things then are being restored to God's intended purposes. This is a very different picture of salvation, of course, than often depicted in the notion of a law that has been broken. The human problem is not that we've broken a law and somebody needs to pay the price. The human problem is that we are alienated there's hatred there's violence and this is on display every day before all of us it's not that we imagine everything can be fixed in terms of a contract and unfortunately this sort of contractual christianity misses the point of christianity certainly misses the import of a book like ephesians and so contractual christianity is just more of the same problem, and maybe even a a confounding of the problem, because it takes away the resolution that we would have otherwise in Christianity. What's being depicted in the book of Ephesians are the principalities and powers are themselves engaged in promoting alienation. Maybe we live in a time when that is most clear, that we have a president and a system in which the violence, the dualisms that divide us are being more and more accentuated. Maybe it's a time in which a Christianity that would identify itself with the forces of alienation proves itself most empty. The Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female. There is a system, the system of this world, black, white, that would continue to do identity according to these antagonistic differences. This describes relationships of power, you know, Jew, free, male, white, all relationships of power over others and to the degree that we identify ourselves with those relationships of power, to the degree that we live off this power, to the degree that this power defines us, I'm afraid we've left off being defined by christ paul describes himself as a prisoner and an ambassador it's an interesting combination that as he is taking up the suffering of christ on behalf of his gentile ministry in that way you know that he's describing that he is in prison then as an ambassador in chains because of the insight he has into the mystery of Christ. And so part of the issue, you know, what is the mystery revealed? Well, he's already explained in chapter 3 that it is the Jew-Gentile unity, and Jews and Gentiles then. This is representation of all people, that they're fellow heirs and fellow members of the body, that God is bringing all things together, and then Paul describes his own ministry as uh, he says, "I've been a made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God, we've got two things juxtaposed. There was a mystery. the mystery then has now been revealed in the wisdom. The wisdom, of course, was always there in the Old Testament, the wisdom literature, but now we have the wisdom personified. And the way that this personification, you know, in Christ, it is personified, but Paul is picturing it as also then embodied in the church, and it's a witness, he says, to the rulers, the authorities. The reason it's a witness is because the rulers and authorities, they would alienate, they would divide, they would build on the differences, they would build the wall, they would close the borders, they would accentuate difference. But Christ then is carrying out the eternal purposes of god in whom we all have access to a new form of identity and so i think this is the sense that which was once hidden hidden since the foundation of the world it's now revealed and of course what's revealed is not some esoteric secret you know like scientology you pay and you can go clear of the body that is i think that this sort of Gnostic notion of secrets, of hiddenness, is precisely over and against what Paul was talking about. It's not Mormonism, where you're inducted into the secrets of the temple. It's not a, another mystery cult. It's more like a secret of Poe's purloined letter, that in the story you know, of Edgar Allan Poe, the, the stolen letter is hidden in plain sight. And now we can see it. It's black and white, maybe quite literally at this point. The way that we would divide up the world so as to gain identity, it involves a certain mystification and a power of division, and that is the thing that obscures it. It's a secret then that's there in the Old Testament in the Jew Gentile divide, sin and law, and the parables of Jesus. You know, think of there was once two brothers, they were divided over inheritance. That the parables of Jesus are all about this division, the mode of doing identity through difference. According to Paul, this is set aside at one level. You know, we can understand in a very simple way Paul's categories, male, female, slave, free, Jew, Gentile. Well, we would say that oppression, discrimination, inequality at a very straightforward level are put to an end. But maybe at another level... When you consider all that is included in Paul's categories, this really includes ethnicity, religion, biology, social class, economics, culture, behavior, gender, sex. You know, you just go, Paul is describing what constitutes humanness. And in some way, these categories, we can't say they're entirely or that they're all set aside. This would be a, a, a kind of impossibility. But most every element of what is considered as constituting humanness, it will have to be reconstituted. Some of it will have to be obliterated. Some of it will have to be deconstructed. Some of it has to be reoriented or recreated. And really this is what Paul's effort is in the New Testament, in his epistles. He is spending his effort in explaining how oneness in Christ is to be implemented. Jews and Gentiles will have to renegotiate nearly every element of their life, how and what to eat, and the role of ethnic and religious identity. Men and women cannot simply continue to do identity according to the way that the culture would have them do identity in their gendered relationships, that sex roles, gender roles, are going to be different in the church different from the surrounding culture. Slaves and free will have to undergo a radical reevaluation in their relationship, as now they're of the same family in the body of Christ. And so, identity will no longer be through oppositional difference, but it will be in Christ. That's Paul's comparison. However, what needs to be obliterated and what needs to be in some way preserved and reconstituted It would seem to work out differently in each of the opposed pairs. We would not think that master Christians and slave Christians is quite the same thing as male Christians and female Christians. That is, the slave-master relationship is undone. This is Paul's picture, I think, in Philemon. In Christ, all have become the servants of one another. The same principle, you know, is there in all of the roles that self-interest, that certainly applies in gender roles, has been no longer according to self-interest. But in writing to the Corinthians or other letters, uh, he's not advocating some sort of gender-neutral or unisexual orientation. Some things may need to be obliterated. We might think there are no longer master Christians, while other things are changed up, and yet they're still preserved. Maybe the prime example of this is Jewishness. It will be preserved. It's not that people will abandon Jewishness. It's not assimilated into the Gentile way of doing things, but neither is it uh, going to be able to maintain in the church It's segregated stance. The Jews will have to fellowship. They'll have to eat with the Gentiles. And so all must relinquish self-interest, which is the prime force in privileging one half of the pair. But how this works itself out in each of the pairs may be quite different. And, of course, one of the things I want to raise, one of the issues, is well, what about something like black and white? To what degree does that resemble the master-slave, or to what degree does that resemble Jew-Gentile? And, of course, the precise thing that Paul identifies that is obliterated is the hostility between the pairs, the hostility towards God, but that hostility becomes a Major mode of identity, and this is in the verse that in chapter four, this is the alienating force is really attached to the principalities and powers which are themselves dividing and darkening. And so, these dualisms that divide Jew, Gentile, slave, free, black, white all gain meaning, you know, whether it's political, religious, gendered meaning through an interdependent difference. So I think that's key to recognize here, that the difference cannot be absolute. There would be no comparison between two things that are absolutely different. But to describe the difference as inhering in the pairs, in some of these pairs creates a kind of instability. This is Hegel's point with slave free, The two things are so interdependent that it is not an enduring relationship because it's entirely constructed. And once the slave part of the pair recognizes that it's not the master per se or the essence of the master that holds the relationship in being, the slave is in a position of undoing his service to the master. Now, in Hegel's depiction, the master's in an even more difficult position because his dependence upon his identity as a master is completely, more so than the slave, dependent upon the slave, You know that, or the slave can see that actually it's the fear of death. And it has nothing really in the end to do with the master. So to describe these differences, there is no essence in either of the parts. There are no masters without slaves, but we can say the same thing. There are really no men. Uh, Maleness would not exist apart from femaleness. No Jews without Gentiles. These things would be completely different. And there really is no white without black. But each of these pairs, I think we need to look at them more carefully to see if they're the the sort of thing that needs to be obliterated or the sort of thing that needs to be preserved. And maybe to get at this, the difference, let me read a quote from James Baldwin, the black novelist and writer and intellectual. And he's described then the way in which whiteness is purely a construct. So here's James Baldwin. The crisis of leadership in the white community is remarkable and terrifying because there is, in fact, no white community. There is, for example, at least in principle, an Irish community, here, there, anywhere, or more precisely, Belfast, Dublin, and Boston. There is a German community, both sides of Berlin, Bavaria, and Yorkville. There is an Italian community, Rome, Naples, the bank of the Holy Ghost, and Mulberry Street. And there is a Jewish community, stretching from Jerusalem to California to New York. There are English communities. There are French communities. There are Swiss consortiums. There are Poles. In Warsaw, where they would like us to be friends, and in Chicago, where because they are white, we are enemies. There are, for that matter, Indian restaurants and Turkish baths. There is the underworld, the poor, to say nothing of those who intend to become rich. They are always with us, but this does not describe a community. It bears terrifying witness to what happens to everyone who got here, to the United States, and paid the price of the ticket. The price was to become white. No one was white before he, she came to America. It took generations and a vast amount of coercion before this became a white country. America became white, The people who, as they claim, settled the country became white because of the necessity of denying the black presence and justifying the black subjugation. No community can be based on such a principle. Or in other words, no community can be established on so genocidal a lie. White men from Norway, for example, where they were Norwegians, became white. By slaughtering the cattle, poisoning the wells, massacring Native Americans, raping black women. This mystery, then, that we, Baldwin, I think, is describing, that is, that people take up an identity, that we all inhabit an identity, we organize ourselves, into nations, religions, even into races. And in the modern period, we understand through DNA analysis and other things that race is really not constituted so much at the biological level as it is a cultural construct. And so being taken up into this is a mystery of interpretation. We could apply it to any number of things, the old against the new, The Old Testament, you know, the New Testament, law against grace, inside against outside. I believe that any system that would presume to divide itself in this way, even and most especially theological systems, have been captured then by an obscuring of the truth. And this is the obscuring that Christ, the lie that Christ has come to dispel. This mystery that divides our thinking, it confounds our thinking, it's a lie, and the truth of Christ exposes the lie. And so whiteness describes a relationship of power, and to the degree that people depend upon this, this is the degree that they miss the genocidal form out of which this identity emerges. In Willie Jennings' description, Jennings is a black theologian, he says that we continue in this country to center the good, the beautiful, the intelligent, and the noble around whiteness, creating a regime of whiteness. This whiteness disciplines fantasies of becoming, becoming human, mature, cultured, civilized, authoritative, such that whiteness continues to colonize through these ongoing effects. Jennings refers to it as Caucasia's capital. He even raises the question, can white people be saved? And the question, as he explains, does not pertain to the efficacy of salvation, you know, in regard to a category of people. But the point is that whiteness is a way of being, it's a construct in the world that stands opposed to the Christian way of being in the world. It divides the world up in a way that Christianity would unite the world. Whiteness, he explains, is a deformed building project aimed at bringing the world to its full maturity, as if whiteness contained the end point. It is conceived as part of the idea of progress. That is, as Europeans colonized the world, this new world that is being conquered and colonized is not allowed a voice, but is named in reference to the colonizers. These Europeans, quoting Jennings, answered the question without the voice or vision of the peoples of the new worlds. They self-designated, and they designated a variety of peoples in reference to their own self-designation. They began to suture different peoples, clans, and tribes into racial categories. They, the Europeans, were white, and the others were almost white, not quite white or non-white or almost black, not quite black or black. Whether metaphorical or literal in these designations, we know that literal genocide began with identifying these non-white people as different, as over and against, and they were denied a voice so that whiteness, was projected into their world as the end point that they had not achieved an order of meaning that they fell outside of in some way. And of course, as Jennings, who is a a theologian, points out, this was very often done in the name of Christ and in the name of Christian missionary enterprise. Quoting Jennings, Death expanded its reach by designating peoples and the earth in reductive categories, isolating lives into fragments in order to make them useful, turning everything into commodities. Christian conversion became an event toward whiteness as a formation toward maturity. In Jennings' explanation, whiteness does not pertain to birth or biology, but it refers to a particular form of human agency and subjectivity by which humanity, progress, maturity is gauged. And so this is the point. To merge Christian, the word Christian or the identity of Christian, with whiteness is on the order of merging master with Christian. It's really to reverse the valuation system of what it means to be a Christian. It entails being an owner rather than being owned. It entails being a citizen of the first world, the world of whiteness, rather than a stranger or a third world. It involves gauging the departure from darkness over and against, in the words, one sets aside one way of being human so as to be white. And whiteness then can be equated with having a voice, whereas to non-whites it means literally in history to have been owned or being part of the material process. One of the things that is being pointed out in the claim that reparations should be paid is the degree to which this economy, and it's quite surprising to the degree, that this economy was built upon the back of slave labor. And so to be a citizen of Caucasia meant taming the wilderness, subjecting the native inhabitants, subjugating them, and by this means establishing an identity, the identity of the nation-state. And this is a pure construct that many people have noticed that it's not grounded in the shared actual race of whiteness, but it's the creation of a new identity. It's not grounded in the land in the way that many peoples identify themselves with a particular locale, but it takes ownership of the land. And the labor of the whites took on a different order of meaning than blacks in relationship to the land, and that was a labor of ownership and control to establish whiteness and citizenship. And so native and black, in Jennings' description, were perceived as closer to nature and its raw condition of unproductivity. That is, you have to take the goods of nature and process them, manufacture them, to make them worthwhile. The destruction of nature renders nature valuable in the form of the product. And in this understanding, whiteness, if we take Christianity as our value system, really what we're saying about being white as an identity would be on the order of imagining that Jewishness, or maleness, or master are in and of themselves an adequate identity. That is, whiteness is a condition of lostness. One is lost due to a misplaced notion of ownership and control, a misplaced notion of citizenship. That is, that in Christianity, we do not claim ownership. We do not claim control, but we ourselves then have turned control over God. Our citizenship is not to be gained in the kingdoms and cities of this world. And all of this then amounts to a misplaced value system. It sounds a lot like James Cone uh, in his book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree. He just says point blank that God is not the God of all people as he is against the oppressor and is the God of the oppressed. He concludes so-called Christianity in this country is actually the racist Antichrist. This false Christianity of the oppressor must be replaced, he says, by an authentic Christianity, fully identified with the poor and oppressed. And think here of the way that John in 1 John uses the idea of Antichrist. The idea of the Antichrist is that these are people that John warns are in the church that they are setting up a system, a valuation system, in this instance, of being Jewish, that John and actually Paul both then will set over and against an authentic Christianity, and John identifies it as the Antichrist. To claim to be a white Christian is to miss, it is to miss Christianity, but it's probably then to miss the oppressive genealogy, the genocidal genealogy of this identity. We can picture this in Paul's description as directly connected with the principles of this world, the powers, the alienating force, that the full weight of the gospel is aimed at defeating. This is precisely why Christ came in Paul's depiction in Ephesians to defeat this division. That is that we've been entrapped in this thing. The mystery of our identity is one we naturally inhabit in the way we organize ourselves in dualistic identity. It's what confounds us and in some way, obscures our understanding. And so it is a mystery. That you can actually take it and picture it as between the creation and the creator, in which... The created order, you know, this is Paul's depiction in Romans 1, is idolatrously pitted against the other. That is, it's in some way reified. It's made God. The idolater self-designates like the white man self-designates. The colonizer, imagining that all else is relative to his created image and imagining that he is actually in the place of the Creator. And so Paul depicts passage from out of this mindset as the opening of this obscurity that darkens every mind. The passage from once hidden to now revealed marks a new historical consciousness. And it is a mystery then concerning relationship between creation and Creator, but of course it's a mystery that Paul describes is interwoven then throughout all of our relationships. It's an idolatrous relationship, it's an antagonistic relationship. And once the opening of the secret, you know, once we pass to that which was once hidden to now revealed, Paul is depicting this as a new historical consciousness. An understanding of the purposes of creation is open to us. And so according to Ephesians, it pertains to things in heaven, things on earth, that is, everything, it's God's predetermined purposes are being worked out for all things. And the idea is we can no longer do identity, preserve the gap on the basis of difference between God and creation, heaven and earth, because Christ has bridged all of those various gaps could read Romans 9 to 11. It's really a retelling of all history. And the unfolding of this mystery, Paul connects then to the breaking down of the dividing wall of hostility. This is in Ephesians 2.14. Between Jews and Gentiles, it's a reference to a literal wall that has cosmic implications. And this reference, then, is obviously to the temple as a cosmic representation, such that divided people will be made one, but also, of course, the breaking down of this wall is the breaking of the wall, the divide between heaven and earth. It's broken down is God and now dwells with man. It's a deployment of the revealed hermeneutic, apart from which the mysteries remain. Paul is actually allegorizing or spiritualizing the most sacred thing to the Jew, the inner core of the temple, the inner core of Judaism. And actually this depicts, it gets at his mode of applying Hebrew scriptures. He's going to do a a kind of allegorical representation of many of the Hebrew scriptures. And the idea is that what pertained then once to these particular individuals pertains cosmically and personally, because people are reconstituted in a singular family, in which their personhood involves a new consciousness. It's holistic, it's personal. And this new family Paul describes in Ephesians two twenty one, in whom the whole building is being fitted together. He's talking about the church, but the church then takes on, it is a temple. It's growing into a holy temple in the Lord. And of course, the temple is itself cosmic, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Gentiles and Jews, black and white, American and immigrant, are no longer divided. The individual, we might say, is no longer divided. Heaven and earth are no longer divided in this fulfilled cosmic arrangement. And so, as Paul describes it in Galatians, the binaries, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female. Maybe, in a sense, these are a kind of convention of language, a convention of the way that we do identity. It is a way of understanding, but it no longer pertains in this new mode and identity of thought. And so this gets at the scheme, once hidden, now revealed. And taking in the full scope of history, it encompasses, Paul says, the age of the cosmos in to 2 in which people were dead in their trespasses. The mystery of that former age, you know, he says it's constituted by the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. The mystery, I think, then, we might connect to the role of sin's deceit, to darkness, to the darkness of sin. And the mystery revealed, I think, is connected. Maybe it's not the full summation of it, but it is connected to the overcoming of sin. Now, Paul in Ephesians 5 is going to connect the revealed mystery. It's not simply this negative thing, because he connects it to the male female a man shall leave his mother and father and cling unto his wife. He's describing in Ephesians five. And he says that this pertains not to simply to the marriage relationship. He says, I'm talking about Christ and the church. And so the one flesh relationship in some way finds its fulfillment or references, the unity of the oneness of marriage, what I'm describing here is that this mystery references a primal goodness which precedes sin. So it's not that the union between Christ and the church like the unity of marriage, it's not incomprehensible. I don't mean to say that. But what is revealed in this union is the cosmic breadth of the marriage like unity brought about in Christ. Creation's purpose remained an undisclosed and unfulfilled mystery, which is now disclosed, made known, preached, realized. It is a new unity and it's realized in the Spirit. And of course, Spirit is interwoven the way that this is captured in 111, 316, 526 of Ephesians, through a spiritual washing, through the power of the Spirit to work in Paul in making the mystery known. It is clear that the Spirit is the means to unity, inward and outward unity, cosmic and local unity, the unity of Christ in the church, the unity of Jews and Gentiles, and the unity realized in the inward man, as Paul puts it, is a reconciliation in Christ, sealed by the Spirit. And Paul sums this up as peace. This peace is not simply an interlude between wars, but it's a state of unity and participation in God. So being in Christ means participation in the cosmic plan unfolding in a unified humanity founded in peace. So all of this refers back to Ephesians nine. he made known to us the mystery of his will. So the gospel is nothing less than an opening up of the will of God to human understanding, we now understand what God has foreordained or predestined or predetermined for the world that you know the uh, what He's elected to do. Strange then that there is another gospel which claims that God's plan or his reasons for predestination they're opaque and of course what I'm talking about here is Calvinism Calvinism. Maybe we could say evangelicalism to the degree that it's Calvinist. There are doctrines that would keep the mystery a mystery. Calvin says that God's predestination is mysterious. It's utterly incomprehensible. I believe there's no accident that this incomprehension of Calvinism leaves violence a place. He believes this impenetrable mystery is itself what is a wonder or to be revered. He says God's mysterious decrees will be revered in their wonderful depth. Calvin warns in the opening of his chapter on predestination that we must restrain curiosity and not ask after the secret things of God as these are forbidden let us not be ashamed to be ignorant in a matter of which ignorance in which ignorance is learning. He's proclaiming, praising ignorance about what the gospel, I believe, is centered on revealing. Calvin warned in the opening chapter on predestination not to ask after the secret things of God. Paul says the secret things of God are revealed. Calvin says, let us not be ashamed to be ignorant. Paul says that we now know that what was hidden is revealed. Calvin says, let us be willing to abstain from the search after knowledge. Paul says that what can be known about God is revealed to us in Christ. In this alternative gospel, then, Calvin is misreading specifically Ephesians 1.4. There is no passage in Calvinism, maybe we could say in much of Protestantism, from hidden mystery to mystery disclosed. Rather, God's mysterious predestination is to elect some and to damn others. And this election is equated with holiness. There is no room for living out this inward and outward unity because they would be confused with meritorious works. For Calvin, then, the gospel is not so much a mystery revealed as a mystery compounded. And so the question is, if a gospel that misses Christ's disclosure and fulfillment of cosmic purposes, purposes preordained before the foundation of the world, does this qualify as gospel, or is it in fact a counter-gospel, an anti-gospel? Calvinism, Augustinianism, Roman Catholicism, Protestantism, very often confound the mystery rather than reveal it by reducing sin and salvation to a mystery. And my point here is that racism, nationalism, ethnocentrism are not going to be addressed by this mystified, obscuring Christianity because it will not disclose the way that we divide up the world, is undone in Christ. So strangely, the the religions and the Christian religions continue to divide, dividing and apportioning perhaps even the body of Christ by human power, human walls of separation, human priests, human institutions. They would say, oh, we only have the true body, only we work the magic of turning the bread and blood into the body of Christ, only we rightly apportion. Back to James Baldwin. But this cowardice, this necessity of justifying a totally false identity and of justifying what must be called a genocidal history has placed everyone now living into the hands of the most ignorant and powerful people the world has ever seen. And how did they get that way? By deciding that they were white. By opting for safety instead of life. By persuading themselves that a black child's life meant nothing compared with a white child's life. By abandoning their children to the things white men could buy. By informing their children that black women black men and black children had no human integrity, that those who call themselves white were bound to respect. And in this debasement and definition of black people, they debased and defamed themselves and have brought humanity to the edge of oblivion. Because they think they are white, because they think they are white, they do not dare confront the ravage and the lie of their history. Because they think they are white, they cannot allow themselves to be tormented by the suspicion that all men are brothers. Because they think they are white, they are looking for, or bombing into existence, stable populations, cheerful natives, and cheap labor. Because they think they are white, they believe, as even no child believes, in the dream of safety. Because they think they are white, however vociferous they may be, and however multitudinous, they are as speechless as Lot's wife, looking backward, changed into a pillar of salt. However, white being absolutely a moral choice, for there are no white people. The crisis of leadership, for those of us whose identity has been forged or branded, as black as nothing new. We who were not black before we got here either, we were defined as black by the slave trade, have paid for the crisis of leadership in the white community for a very long time, and have resoundingly, even when we face the worst about ourselves, survived and triumphed over it. If we had not survived and triumphed, there, there would not be a black American alive. End of quote there. There can be no more white Christians. Certainly, then, there can be white Christians no more than the divide between Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female continues. This is not the way Christians do identity. God's will for time, for all eternity, for all reality, are summed up in Christ. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things, things in heaven and things on the earth. All that is now divided is being unified in Christ. All that is alienated is being reconciled in Christ, and it is out of this reality that we are to live. At A very simple point. To be Christian is to break out of the division of whiteness as an identity, as a value system, or a form of citizenship. Perhaps all we can expect is to gradually learn to be something other than white. Something on the order of citizens of a different sort of kingdom. And this begins in Paul's description through a different sort of embodiment. That is, we're embodied in Christ. We are members of the body of Christ. And this isn't simply an abstraction, but it's a real-world connection to other people's as a means to receiving grace and gifts of the Spirit. This is not identity by difference through segregation, but a preservation of unity provided by Christ. As Paul says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were also called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. To be Christian, then, is to give up on ownership, it's to give up on first world citizenship, so as to identify with a different citizenry, the dispossessed and poor in the world. The space Christians are to occupy is neither coveted nor contested as it is outside the city where doing life together is the singular economy in value. As Jennings puts it, we must be saved from being or becoming white people. As we relinquish white capital, we can begin to enjoy the gifts from on high, in Paul's phrase. But to each one of us, Paul says, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And this is capital. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org donate.